Well, good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. We are concluding our Therefore Everyone series, which is actually part two of our series on Romans that we started all the way back in September. And we're going to look at two themes this morning, themes that show up throughout the book of Romans, but interestingly, two of the main themes of the whole Bible. And you would expect that because if Romans is all about the gospel and the Bible is all about the gospel, the good news that God delivers in Jesus, then we would think the main themes of Romans would be the main themes of the gospel, would be the main themes of the Bible, and that's exactly what we find. I was going to take a poll of what those two main themes are, but I figured we'd waste a lot of time, so I'm going to tell you. The two main themes are community and mission. Now, you've got to understand those terms on the broad scheme. It goes like this. The mission of God is all about reestablishing community, community between human beings and himself, community among ourselves, community with other people. So the gospel, God is all about establishing and reestablishing and building community. That's why we have section communities. That's why we tell you to build into the lives of other people, form relationships. God never intended that we go through life all alone. He wants us to go through life in community. That's a theme that runs through the Bible. It's in Romans, and we see it in the gospel clearly. Also, we have the theme of mission. We're not just here to mark time and form community. We're here on a mission. That's why we talk an awful lot about continuing what Jesus started. We don't get to decide what the mission is. Jesus tells us the mission, calls us to participate in that mission, and then extend that mission. So the two big themes of the gospel are community and mission. The two big themes of Romans are community and mission. And lo and behold, the two big themes of the Bible are community and mission. But before we actually get to the themes from chapters 15 and 16 in the book of Romans, I thought we would uh, take a little bit of time to look at where we've been since we've been here since uh, September. We started all the way back in September looking at the first half of Romans, 1 through 8, and we called that little series for everyone. We used a black background for that series because winter was coming and we hate winter. But notice it's for everyone. And as you read those early chapters of Romans, in a sense, God is saying, this gospel, this message, what I'm all about, it's rooted in the Old Testament, it's centered in Jesus, and it's for everyone, regardless of background, regardless of IQ, regardless of socioeconomic level. Everybody is welcome. This message is for everyone. In fact, Paul tells us pretty clearly what the theme of the book is in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. He says it like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There it is. It just means good news. And so I'm not ashamed of this good news. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul kind of unpacks that in 16 chapters. That's the main theme of the gospel, and the themes that come from it are community and mission. In that For Everyone series, we gave you a little rubric to help you understand how the first eight chapters go together, and we used uh, problem, solution, results. Remember that? And we said right from those verses, the problem is that God requires righteousness, but we don't have any. That's the problem. 
The requirement is righteousness. The problem is we don't have any. Well, if that's the requirement, you don't have any. Well, you need a solution. Well, there are kind of two solutions that human beings tend to run toward. The first solution is if the requirements righteousness on or have any, I better try to get some. So I'm going to work hard and I'm going to make this an effort deal. And by working hard, I'm going to try to get some righteousness. Well, Paul tells us and the Bible repeatedly tells us that plan of self-help is no help. Self-help doesn't help. And so if the problem is righteousness and your solution is try harder and earn some, that's a never-ending road. You're never going to earn it. Well, what's another solution? Oh, yeah, the other solution is you can accept the righteousness that God gives by faith. So this righteousness that God gives, he gives freely by grace, and we receive it by faith. God gives it. All we do is put our faith in him. Notice the songs today were all about trust, all about faith. We need to transfer our trust from our little self-help plan, from our wisdom to God's plan. And when we do that, we experience the solution that's faith-based. So God graciously gives the righteousness. We receive it by faith. That's the solution. And once that's done, all kinds of results then begin to flow. And a lot of those results are mentioned in chapters five through eight. But then when we shift gears after Christmas, we shifted series and went to therefore everyone. And since spring was coming, we got rid of the black background and put in a happy pastel background because the flowers are blooming. And so now we look at therefore everyone because the word therefore means as a result of, as a consequence, in light of what's happened, what are the results? Interestingly, the main parts of the therefore are all about relationships. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah, which is community. Most of the therefore has to do with relationship change. So chapters 9 through 11 in Romans are all about a transformed relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Then we come to chapter 12, which is all about relationships. And remember, we use those concentric circles to help us understand the ever-expanding ripples of gospel transformation. Once your relationship with God changes, very quickly your relationship with yourself changes. We can't understand ourselves unless we understand something about God. You understand something about God, all of a sudden your eyes are open and you understand yourself differently. Once we understand ourselves differently, we can live in community with other believers, with the church differently, but that's not the end of it. We not only live differently with our brothers and sisters in the community called church, we live differently with our neighbors, everybody we come across, even those neighbors that are difficult people. And we live differently by loving them and seeking to serve them. And then the beginning of uh, chapter 13 says, and the really difficult people you need to live differently with are government officials and politicians. Live differently with them. Understand the systems that God has set up, those circles of authority, and live righteously within them. God being your primary um, ruler, but also living within the systems and structures that God's established. And then last week, we looked at living with people that are strong and weak. And I know all of you put yourselves in a strong category, but depending on the issue, we're strong or we're weak, but our relationship with people that are strong and weak changes. Those that are more mature, we honor and respect. And those that are less mature, we honor and respect. We live differently in all of these different relationships. Well, community. See that word, community? 
Do you realize that community and unity are not the same thing? I know community has unity in it, but community is bigger than unity. Did you know that? Look, it's a lot longer than unity. Unity means the same. It means you have something in common. If we have complete unity, we're exactly the same. But if we're all exactly the same, we can't have community. You see, community means that you have something in common, something really significant in common. We have the center in common, but there's lots of differentness and diversity around the center of commonality. Well, first of all, let's look at the unity piece. Here's how Paul says, it's almost a prayer that Paul says right at the beginning of 15. He says it like this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. We're talking about a high standard. Paul says, I want you guys to have the same mind and attitude that Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the unity piece, right? That's the first eight, eight chapters. That's the first 14 chapters. That's all the unity stuff. And every time I read that, I can't help but think, Paul must have had a worship service in mind. Like, look if it says, with one mind and one voice. Where else do we ever get together with one voice? Only when we gather and we sing together. So I'm guessing as Paul's writing this, he's, in his, he's never been to Rome, remember? He's picturing the Roman Christians gathering together and with one voice singing and as they're singing and reflecting on the words, their minds are not in neutral, their minds are engaged. And as they're singing with one voice, their minds are thinking about the same things. Is that what's happening? Is, is that what happens when we gather? I hope so. You know, the, the words are right from biblical themes. And I sure hope that what we're thinking about is the one mind issues that we should be reflecting on from the songs or... Are we complaining that it's not the way I like it? It's a little loud or soft. It's, you know, sometimes even in the midst of one voice, we don't have one mind. So Paul looks at that and says, in my mind, when I picture you guys gathered for worship with one voice, behind the one voice is one mind. We're together. There's unity. That's cool, right? But that's just unity. Where's the community piece come in? Well, that comes because of diversity. Diversity. Now, uh, I asked Anna this morning to do a little exegetical work for me. So I'm going to give you some numbers. You may need to write these down. Here are the numbers. 26, 8, 9, 34. 26, 8, 9, 34. Here's what the numbers mean. Paul mentions in chapter 16... 34 people by name. Wow. 26 of those people are in the church at Rome. Eight of the people are with him in Corinth as he's writing the letter. We'll talk about the nine in a little bit. Now, why did Paul do that? Well, as I read through chapter 16, here's what I did. And you can I'm not going to read it because I can't pronounce most of the names. But I'll tell you right up front, we don't know most of the details. We don't know anything about some of the names that are listed. But Paul knew about them. And here's what you'll discover. Paul had a little something to say 
thanks, a word of encouragement about every one of them. Well, that kind of struck me because I'm not very good at that. I don't know about you. I'm, not, I'm good at critique. Now, you show me anything, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Um, but the encouragement side, the thankful side, I figure, well, you know what? When you mess up, I'll let you know. Otherwise, it must be good. Yeah, but that's not Paul. And you think I would know better. Because you see, I have a drawer number two. It, it goes like this. On my desk, if you're seated at my desk, and, and that's not an invitation, by the way, but if you're seated at my desk, there are three, door, three drawers to my right. The top drawer is a mess. It has a bunch of crap in it. I'm not even sure what's in there. I just throw stuff. It has a bunch of holes in it. I know that has my fingernail cutters in there. I don't know. It's a, me- it's a mess. The bottom drawer is a file drawer. It has a bunch of hanging files. So in that drawer, I've got SLT meeting notes. I've got elder stuff in the bottom drawer. And in drawer number two, if you were to open it, you would find a Calvary directory. Because sometimes I need email address. I need a phone number. And I, there's nobody at the reception desk to get her to do my work for me. So I have to look it up. But underneath the directory, you'd find a whole bunch of notes and some cards and some printed out emails. They are words of encouragement and thanksgiving that people have periodically sent to me. You think since I need a drawer number two that I'd be better at that? You know what I think when I come to Romans 16? Romans 16 is Paul's drawer number two. But it's not for himself. He wants to fill the drawer number two of the people he's writing to. Imagine if your name, with a couple word of thanksgiving, was written in the Bible. My guess is they would take that chapter and put it in their drawer number two. So here's my question to you all. Does anybody have a note from you in their drawer number two? Or are you more like me, just giving words of uh, criticism and critique. We all need encouragement and thanks. We all need a drawer number two. And here's Paul, often viewed as this hard-headed, cold-hearted theologian. But you can't read his letters and keep having that opinion because he always ends the letters with words of gratitude, thanksgiving, and a list of people that he's with and a list of people that he's sending a message to. Huh. So even without reading the names, maybe there's a message from Romans 16. 34 names. 26 in Rome. 8 in Corinth. Paul knew them. He's grateful for them. He appreciates them. And he tells them so. But if you read through the names, you also discover that they're very different. It's kind of interesting. So, for example, they come from different classes. There are a few people mentioned in Romans 16 that are actually heads of estates. That doesn't mean like you're the head of household on your income tax. That means like you're head of a big estate. You're like a business owner. They're heads of estates in Romans 16. And there are people listed in Romans 16 that are slaves. And they're in the same congregation in Rome. Very different classes. There are also people from different maturity levels. 
Now, Paul doesn't spell that out in Romans 16, but we know from Romans 14 that there were some weak, right? Those that aren't quite as mature and those that are strong, those that are a lot more mature. And they're both in the church. And what was Paul's message in Romans 14? And what does he say in Romans 16? Everybody needs to be respected and honored regardless of their class and regardless of their maturity level. You know, sometimes I wonder if our words keep people immature or do our words actually seek to build them up? They also come from different races. Paul started his letter all the way back in chapter 1 by saying this gospel message for Jews and Gentiles. Well, when you read Romans 16, you see all that. He mentions Priscilla and Aquila. They're obviously Jews. He mentions his relatives, a few of his relatives. Well, Paul was Jewish. His relatives are Jewish. And then he also says, fellow Jews. Obviously, from Romans 16, we know there were Jewish people in the list. And we also know from a bunch of the names that there were more Gentiles than Jews in the list. Different races. There were Jews and Gentiles in the church. And Paul's, Paul's giving words of gratitude and thanksgiving to both groups. Oh, yeah. And there are men and women in the list. That's the other number. Nine out of the 26 names that he writes to the church in Rome about are women, 35%. In fact, the longest section and the longest commendation goes to a woman. Now, you know, we often look back and think, oh, yeah, that was a really a patriarchal system and Paul's nothing but a misogynist, right? No, 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 35%. The longest commendation goes to a woman. At the beginning of the chapter, I want to read it to you. Here's what he writes about Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, we're not real good on ancient history, uh, but let me tell you a little bit about what we know from just what Paul wrote. Why would Paul give a commendation to start chapter 16? I'll tell you why. Because back then, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, there was no Facebook, there was no YouTube, there was no easy way to communicate. So if somebody was going on an errand, or some kind of an assignment, and they needed letters of confirmation. They needed to say, hey, I'll vouch for this person. You had to do it in writing. Why would Paul go through such a long commendation for Phoebe? All the commentators agree, because Phoebe's the one delivering the letter. Isn't that interesting? Paul entrusts the letter of Romans to a woman named Phoebe and sends her from Corinth to Rome to deliver the letter. No other people are mentioned in the delivery party, which probably means not only was Phoebe a woman, Phoebe was also someone who could be trusted, and she was really wealthy. You want to know why no one else is mentioned? Because no one was traveling with her except her employees, people that work for her. Oh, and that brings, her, brings us to the part she's the benefactor. A benefactor means she's the one giving the support. She's the one paying the way. 
The, the church in Sancria, those people received benefit and, and support from Phoebe. She's probably like Lydia. She probably owns a business. She's a benefactor. And Paul even says, she has been a major supporter of my ministry. I'm able to do what I've been doing and the gospel's being advanced because of people like Phoebe. She's a deacon in the church. Now the word deacon, it can mean office, it can mean servant. We're not exactly sure what it means here, but there's no problem in saying, yeah, Phoebe is a deacon in the church of St. Korea, giving lots of support and lots of people have been helped. She's a benefactor of people in the church and I've been the recipient of a lot of her support. Gender, class, maturity level, race. Just a little bit of the diversity in the church at Rome. Uh, I have to confess, based on chapter 16, the church in Rome was a whole lot more diverse than Calvary Church. Now, I don't say that as an indictment, a critique. I'm just saying the reality. They were a diverse community, but it is a good reminder the gospel is for everyone. And the results of the gospel means we live in community, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of, of others. And if we were to take out and tease out the principles of community, we would discover to have community that's gospel-centered means that I take whatever God's given to me and I put it into play for the common good, not for my own individual individual good. That's kind of, and so if you've got financial means like Phoebe, you're putting some of that into play for the common good. If you've got leadership gifts, like the leaders of Calvary Church, we've got great leaders here on staff and on the elder board. What are they? Their responsibility isn't to hoard all the goodness of the gospel for us. They need to be strategizing. We're regularly thinking about how can we reach more and more people with this message of the gospel. That's what the leaders of the church do. We don't hoard the goodness. We want to share the goodness. How when it comes to education and what you know, whatever your gifts may be, your time, your talent, how are you putting those things into play for the common good rather than your good? Phoebe was a great example of doing that. And we need to be better examples of doing that. Not to earn anything. All that's been settled by Jesus in the first half of the letter. But in response, therefore, as a consequence, as we continue what Jesus started, we begin to live more like him putting those resources into play for the common good, not just for our good. So that's kind of the community piece. It's unity. Oh, yeah, one mind, one voice, but great diversity. Isn't that exactly what Paul wrote <clears throat> to the Corinthians? And, that, and that's where he is writing, writing this letter. He's in Corinth. Remember he talked about the body? One body, lots and lots of different parts. You don't have a body if it's just a giant eyeball, right? In fact, how would the eyeball get anywhere unless it got kicked and rolled down a hill? You, you need feet to get the eyeball around. You need ears to hear what people are saying. You need a mouth so you can speak. You need lots and lots of diversity in order to live out the unity. In Romans 16, Paul says, you guys got it. One mind, one voice, diverse gifts, abilities, backgrounds, races, genders, all the class, all that stuff. You've got all it takes to live in community and to be a good example of the body of Jesus in living out the mission. And that brings us to the mission piece. Remember community and mission? Mission's the second piece. Some of you think, oh, I thought we were done. No, we have the mission piece. You know, I love Romans because uh, mission begins and ends the letter. Let me show you. In verse 1, here's what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now, when I say the word apostle, 
Most of you immediately think of an office, like the apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? You and, and it's become that. But do you realize the word apostle just means somebody who was sent? Somebody who was sent. Sent on a mission, sent on an errand. That's what an apostle meant. Here's what I was thinking uh, this past week. Suppose we could rewind the clock from the day Paul was writing Romans, right? With days writing this. Rewind the clock 30 years. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee the strictest of strict Jews. If you were to say to Paul 30 years before he wrote Romans, Paul, I got a great idea. Why don't you spend your life, risk life and limb for the benefit of Gentiles? How's that sound? Paul would have probably spit on the ground and said, how disgusting. But here we are 30 years later. He is risking life and limb and will actually give his life in his mission because he was sent to the Gentiles. How did that change? It changed because that relational change happened, that transformation happened on the inside that then results in that change in relationship on the outside. And so Paul is on this mission. He's sent as an apostle to the Gentiles and it radically alters everything about him. But at the end of the book, Paul reminds us of gospel again. Here's what he says in chapter 15. But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, what's going on? Okay, here's what's going on. Paul wrote this letter on a mission journey. Paul, we know that Paul went on at least three mission journeys all around Asia Minor, all around the Mediterranean. He would often take a ship from place to place. And Paul always went to... Big cities where there were lots of Gentiles because he was sent to the Gentiles. He'd first go to Jews, they'd kick him out, then he'd go to the Gentiles. He's traveling all over doing it. And on his third missionary journey is when he writes this letter. He's in Corinth, but he's first, he's first going to Jerusalem. You know why he's going to Jerusalem? Because he collected lots of money for the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem that were experiencing great poverty experiencing bad times because of the gospel. So think about that. Paul collected money from Gentile Christians to deliver back to help the Jewish Christians. He's on a mission. But Paul wanted to go to Spain. See, he said that here in Spain? He wanted to go to Spain. But my guess is he either looked at a map or he knew the map and said, huh, but Jerusalem is really a far away from Spain, opposite ends of the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah, but look, Rome's like halfway there. I got an idea. I will shorten my supply chain by 50% if I can establish a base of operations in Rome. So Paul sends this letter to Rome, not just to introduce himself, not just to say, hey, here's a gospel you guys need to know about. I'm really happy you guys are experiencing community there. He sends the letter to say, hey, I'm coming to you guys soon, and I really want you to assist me. That does not mean he wants to have a cup of coffee. That means he wants to take an offering, and he wants them to become his base of operations as he goes to Spain. Paul ends the letter with mission, and he says, hey, my life is a mission. Jesus included me in his mission. I am now in mission to include as many people as I can. And so mission ends the letter. As Paul says, I'm headed to Spain. I need a new base of operations. Would you guys consider that being 
that being Rome. Mission from beginning to end. That's why we talk about continuing what Jesus started. That's our mission. We don't get to make it up. We just continue what Jesus started. Well, how does Paul end the letter? That's kind of interesting. He ends with motivation. And he ends the letter with these words. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, jump down to after the dash because everything else is just an explanation, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that after this long letter where Paul writes about Jews and Gentiles, he writes about the God, he writes about all, he saves his last words for God. He says, when all is said and done, this isn't really about me. It's not about you guys in Rome. It's not about these people in Corinth. It's not about the people in Jerusalem. It's not even about the people in Spain. When all is said and done, this is about God. And I do what I do to glorify him. And he did all that he did so he can include us in his plan of glorification. He ends by speaking to God. And what's he talk about? Well, he talks about the gospel. That's how he started. That's how he ends. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, now he explains it. So here's the gospel. The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. Now, remember we said that all the way back at the beginning. The word gospel just means good news. And that word was already running around and had a long reputation before Jesus showed up. And here's how the word was often used. Good news meant that a new king had ascended to the throne. And since they didn't have newspapers and didn't have the internet and didn't have websites to get the news out, here's what would happen. When the new king ascended the throne, they would bring a bunch of heralds into the courtroom. And they would send the heralds out, the messengers out, with this message. Go tell everybody far and wide, we have a new king. And the heralds would leave the presence of the king and they'd run all over, to, all over the kingdom and say, we have a king, we have a king. Paul says, that's all I am. I'm just one of the messengers announcing to anybody that'll listen, we have a new king. I have a new king. His name's Jesus and I follow him. You see, ultimately, the gospel is not about you. Remember we said that a lot in the beginning? The gospel is not really about you. And we need to regularly remember that because if you're like most of us, we open the Bible and start wanting to read about us. The good news isn't really about you. The good news is about Jesus. Paul proclaims this message about Jesus. We have a new king. Oh, yeah, but the gospel really is about you. It's not about you, but it is about you. And it's amazing and incredible to think that before the world began, when God was drawing up his plan of forever, he wanted you to be included in that plan. And so as the little name tents were being calligraphied with the names of those that will be at that feast, he made sure that the scribes calligraphied your name and that there's a name tag on that banquet table that is your name on. Paul never got over that fact. I sure hope we don't either.
So Paul says, the last thing I want to say is the primary thing. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Then he concludes. That's what the gospel is. And you know what the gospel does? Look at it. It establishes us. You know, sometimes we think of the gospel as a doorway. You walk through, now you're in, you kind of run around and do what you want. No, 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 the gospel is more like a foundation. The gospel is more like a base. You don't grow from it or walk through it, you build on it. I was thinking of ways to explain that. I'm not very technological, so I was asking lots of young people today. The gospel gives you a new operating system. How many of you use an Android phone? All right, sorry. How many of you use an iPhone? Do you realize that some apps run a whole lot better on an iPhone if they were developed for the iPhone operating system? And other apps run better on an Android system if they were built to run on the Android operating system. And what Paul says in Romans is, when you accept Jesus, when you begin to follow Jesus, when you transfer your trust from whatever it is to him, you get a new operating system. And the old apps that used to run real well on your old operating system, they shouldn't run real well anymore. The old apps of selfishness and egocentrism and doing it your way and serving yourself, those apps don't run well on the gospel operating system. But you get some new apps that run real well on the gospel operating system. Apps like encouragement, gratitude, generosity, thanksgiving, sacrifice, continuing what Jesus started. So my question is, what apps are you running? Trying to jury-rig those old apps to run on the new gospel operating system? It doesn't work well, does it? Or do you still have the old operating system and you're trying to make the gospel apps run on the old operating system? It won't work, right? You can't live a generous life unless you've got the operating system of Jesus. You can't live for the benefit of other people unless you've got the operating system of the gospel. So what Paul says in Romans is, you've got a problem. The problem is that sin has distorted your operating system And the only way to get a new one is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once you get that new operating system, the gospel apps will run okay on it. And all the old apps you're used to running, you're going to have problems trying to run them. The solution is trust the new operating system. Download and run with the apps of the gospel operating system, not the old one. That's kind of the same way of saying, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with with my gospel to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.